All right, well, this morning we continue in Hebrews chapter 8. More about the better ministry of Jesus because of the better covenant that he uh, ministers under and its better promises that God gives us in that better covenant, that new covenant. So we're going to look at verses 6 to 13 this morning. Most of that is a long quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verses 31 to 34. But uh, inspired by God, the author chose to uh, quote that passage and and use it to teach us about uh, God's promises to us. So let me read from verses 6 to 13. As always, this is God's very living and inerrant word. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, or with it, I think is better. He finds fault with it when he says to them, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May he write it upon our hearts here this morning. And may it bear fruit in our lives. Let me pray for us as we come before it. <clears throat> our Lord God and Father, again, as we come before you to hear your word, may you bless this time, bless its going out, so that it does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes everything that you have purposed and planned for it. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning so that our ears are open and our eyes are open to hear and see everything that you would have us learn from your word. And in doing so, may it become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk according to everything that it teaches us. Our Father, we ask this as always in the precious, wonderful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, we had the Super Bowl recently, and in all honesty, I don't remember whether it was last week or the week before. It doesn't matter. Um, what, it, what it came out of that was the news that the, the winning quarterback, a guy named Tom Brady, won his fifth Super Bowl. That's more than any other quarterback who's ever played uh, in the NFL. Broke a tie that he had with a couple of famous quarterbacks, Joe Montana and Terry Bradshaw. Now, I was talking with friends at work about all this and what happened. And one guy noted, you know, Terry Bradshaw now is retired. He's an analyst with one of the TV stations, one, the one, in fact, that broadcast the Super Bowl. And he helped present the awards uh, and acknowledge the winners after the game. And this friend of mine noticed how 
during this whole presentation, Terry Bradshaw was very humble, didn't talk at all about himself or what he had accomplished. Four Super Bowl wins in six years. Never lost a Super Bowl. Um, how he was very humble and encouraging and congratulating the winners, including the winning quarterback. And apparently there's been a debate going on since the Super Bowl. Well, who is the greatest quarterback to have played in the NFL? Well, for some it's easy. The guy who won five Super Bowl <laughs> is the greatest. Others say, well, but he also lost one or two. So how could he be that great if he lost? Others say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of eras, of different eras and different times. Um, you know, the game was tougher back in the day. But one person pointed out something that's, that's very interesting to me, and it got me thinking along a train of thought that kind of fits with what we're talking about here this morning. Back in the oldies and goldies, the 70s and 80s, when Terry Bradshaw was playing quarterback, quarterbacks called their own plays. What that means is when the players all got together, it was the quarterback who decided what they were going to do. We're going to do this, we're going to pass, we're going to run, we're going to do whatever. Um, in the modern era, today, Quarterbacks, every play is called by some coach on the sidelines or up in a booth somewhere. They even have mics in their helmets where people talk to them and tell them what to do. They could call a play, the guy walks up to the, the line to get ready to get the ball hiked to him, and there's someone talking in his ear saying, hey, there's a guy over here, don't run that play, run a different one. So he's being told what to do. Terry Bradshaw never had anybody doing that. He had to make it up all on his own as he was going through the game. Why did this change take place? My favorite quarterback, Roger Staubach, chafed under a coach, Tom Landry, who took the play calling away from him and started calling the plays from the sideline. And, and he, he chafed under it. He was angry about it because it's like, you don't trust me. You don't think I'm good enough. And the coach was like, well, but I'm the one who designed these plays and I know how they work best. And so there was this conflict. But that's what it really comes down to, control. The coach wants to control what's going on out there. And you don't see it just in football. You see it in other sports as well. You watch basketball now, and every time the team comes down the court with a basketball, there's the coach flashing some sign about what play they are to run, a fist, a hand, fingers, circling, you know, whatever, telling them exactly what to do. As they run back down the court to play defense, he's yelling at them to play a certain kind of defense, it used to be when I played basketball back in the day or watched it, the coaches sat in a chair on the sideline and watched. Now they're standing up, pacing up and down, interfering with play. Baseball's the same way. You've got, you got a coach in the dugout signaling to the catcher, who then signals to the pitcher what pitch to throw. As if this pitcher who's played baseball his whole life and is pretty good doesn't know what to do in a given situation. So you watch a game, and the catcher's looking over to the dugout. Then he flashes. It takes forever. And on offense, the batter's standing out of the batter's box while the manager flashes a sign to the third base coach and then flashes it to the... Everything's controlled. This lack of freedom we see in sports. We see it in other areas as well. My own theory is this is why soccer and lacrosse and other sports are becoming more popular. It's harder to control. 
Players like it more when they get to run around and do their own thing. The rise of MMA with fewer rules and regulations than wrestling or boxing, more independence. But anyway, this trend that we see in sports is, is going on in other areas of life as well. You see it in business. <coughs> more and more regulations, more and more rules, longer and longer policies, step-by-step -step detailed procedures on how to do everything you do in your job with little thought and little creativity given to the employees. Or there's a problem in society. What's the first thing that we do? And it doesn't matter which party you're in or which part of the political spectrum you're in. What's the first thing we do? Let's pass a law. Let's make more regulations. Let's set more standards. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's try and manipulate and control things to get the outcome that we want. We even see it in the church. Detailed rules for how to live and think and act. Fundamentalists and their different rules that led to prohibition. Don't drink, don't dance, don't go to the movies, don't wear makeup, don't wear jewelry, don't do this, don't do that. Legalism arises in all sorts of different forms. Now I talk about this as something going on today, but it's always been going on throughout human history. We don't like lack of control. Leaders want to control things. They want to manage, even dictate the outcome of the results. And so the less trust they have in their people, the more rules they make. The more rules they make, the more frustrated people get, and it just spirals into this unhealthy, frustrating situation. Now we know the cause of this because we have God's word. It's sin. There are those who can't be trusted. There are those who need to be controlled. There are those who are capable and trustworthy as well, but how does a leader distinguish between the two? Or sometimes it's just sinful pride by those in charge. I'm in charge, I'm in control, I'm going to dictate what happens. Or fear, I'm afraid of failing. So if I control people, we won't fail. In some ways, I think, as I thought about this issue of, of trying to control things that go wrong by more and more rules and regulations, I think really the Bible kind of tells us this story in its own unique way. The history of the Bible is, 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 is in some ways a history of trying to control behavior with more rules and laws and regulations, and it just fails. Time and time again. Or to borrow from our author, going back into chapter 7. God gave the law, but the law made nothing perfect, he said in verse 19 of chapter 7. Through the priests of that law, perfection could not be attained, he told us in verse 11 of chapter 7. In fact, he went so far as to say in verse 18 that the former commandment, the former law, was weak and was useless. And later he's going to conclude in chapter 10, verse 1, that the law is just a shadow, just a shadow of the better good things to come and could never make perfect God's people. Now that's a striking thing to think about given what we just read earlier this morning from Deuteronomy 4 and from Matthew 5. Do this and live. Be perfect. 
And so what the author is arguing to us in these couple chapters here, in 7 and 8 in particular, is that that external law, those regulations, those stipulations, those statutes, and all those things that were external and ineffective had to be replaced by something that would actually make a difference in changing people for the better. Something that would actually make them obedient servants of God. Something that would actually bring about holiness in their lives. In sports or business or in society, we do see individuals who have some internal capacity to do what needs to be done. And those kinds of people are very valuable. Usually it comes through good training and years of experience and leads to people who can manage their own affairs. The worker who knows how to do the job without a detailed list of regulations and instructions and guidelines and restrictions. Well, there's where the difference or the similarities end. Because in the realm of holiness, in the realm of obeying God, it's not experience and it's not training that produces these kinds of people. In fact, later in chapter 8, verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor. Why? Because they can't. It can't be taught. Holiness can't be taught. It has to be a work of God in his people's hearts that changes them into a new people. And that's what's being talked about in these chapters here in Hebrews. And that's what that passage is about this morning. Those external controls were ineffective. Those laws, those regulations, those precepts, those rules, the rites and the rituals of Old Testament religion. The first covenant with its, with its laws and rules and precepts was found faulty, we're told, in verses 7 and 8. And so a new second covenant was promised. And that promise was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the coming of the new covenant, its inception and its inauguration by Jesus himself, makes the old covenant obsolete, we're told, in verse 13. In fact, you could think about the time when Hebrews was written. This again kind of tells us that it was written before 70 AD. It's becoming obsolete. And there's even some speculation by some commentators that it was written at the time when Roman armies were gathering outside of Jerusalem to attack the city. And uh, therefore, those who were aware, and those who remember Jesus' words about not one stone being left on another, recalled that prophecy from Matthew 24 and saw the destruction coming. So the author can write, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. But we're told in verse 6, where things kind of hinge in this chapter, that the new covenant ultimately is better because of its better promises. So really what I want to look, what I want to do this morning as we go through the passages is look at two things. The problems with the old covenant and then the promises of the new covenant. The problems of the old one and the promises of the new. Now when it comes to the problems, the author's been talking about these for a while. Again, go back into chapter 7. Jesus is a better high priest. He's not like those Old Testament priests who were many in number, who offered sacrifices daily for their own sins and for the sins of the people, and had to do this over and over and over again, year after year, century after century. 
even over more than a millennia of time. That's a weakness of the Old Covenant. That's a problem. And so Jesus, by contrast, is a better high priest who offered himself once for all time. His once-for-all sacrifice of himself accomplishes the payment for sin once and for all. Unlike the ineffective, repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament system, they are replaced once and for all by the sacrifice Jesus offers of himself. After portraying Jesus as that kind of high priest, the author says we have that kind of high priests. He's not only a better priest, but he serves in a better sanctuary. It's the real sanctuary, the heavenly place where God is himself. That, That temple, that tabernacle, as great and as beautiful as they were, were just shadows of the true reality in heaven. It's just a model. Jesus serves a better ministry as well because he's at the right hand of God. He doesn't have to go behind a curtain in a temple somewhere. He goes right into God's presence. He's at the right hand of God, and he offers himself to God and makes intercession for his people continually. And so now we have a new covenant. I skipped a page here. Let me go back. Whoops. No, I didn't. All right. I did skip a page. Picking up again. (laughs) We need such a high priest. And why do we need him? Because the law, as good and as holy as it was and as it is, the law could not make us perfect. And we must be perfect in order to approach God, to have fellowship with him, and to be acceptable to him. Remember the words that we heard from the New Testament reading from Matthew 5. Jesus says, and this is very powerful, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about the Pharisees and the scribes. Here they were. Israel had been punished for their sins, sent into exile, now restored. Exiled because of their covenant breaking. And so the goal of the Pharisees was let's keep the law meticulously in every detail that we can think of so that Messiah will come. So that Messiah will come and establish this new kingdom that will never fail or never end. But unfortunately, all this extensive, excessive, detailed law keeping, all it did was put a burden on the people. It's like those. It's like that coach controlling things from the sidelines or from the dugout. Can't bear to let anything go wrong. And it's just a burden to those who have to live under it. A legalism that exceeded even the requirements of the law given through Moses. But Jesus still says, your righteousness must exceed theirs to get into the kingdom of heaven. They were sticklers for keeping the rules, the Pharisees. But they were imperfect. They were prideful. Often the case with rule makers today. But Jesus still says, you want to go to heaven? You want to see the kingdom? You've got to be perfect. Even as your heavenly Father is perfect at the end of Matthew 5. 
The law, nevertheless, is given as a guide to holiness and perfection. But unfortunately, by keeping that law externally, change could not come to God's people. Perfection could not be attained because the law could make nothing perfect. It was weak and useless for that task. And that weakness and that uselessness was a reason for God's people to be looking for something better, something that would make them perfect, because the law couldn't do it. And so the law is found to be faulty, and that's where the author goes in verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But it was faultless, and so there was need for a second. And God does find fault in that covenant when he promises what he does in Jeremiah 31. And again, I think the translation here in the ESV, it goes, uh, for he finds fault with them. It really should be, for he finds fault with it, the covenant, when he says to them. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 31. It's just a better fit for the context of the passage. And really, here, God is not finding fault with the people. He's finding fault with the covenant. So we need to get that straight in our, in our thinking. So God's promise of a, of a new and better covenant is implicitly a condemnation of the covenant that came before, a declaration of fault in that old covenant. And also, as the armies of Rome gather around Jerusalem to destroy it, that's also... A reminder, look, if, if Rome can destroy this great system of worship with all its rituals and regulations, why would God allow that if it was so great? And then the last fault of the Old Covenant, based on worse promises. We'll look at that in more detail when we consider the promises of the, of the New Covenant. But... Verse 6 introduces this prophecy and this promise of a new covenant by telling us that the high priest that we need, Jesus himself, serves a better ministry of a better covenant with better promises. The ministry that he has is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it, the new covenant, is enacted on better promises. So the old must have had lousy promises. And we'll see that to be true as we look through the promises. So, now, let's look at the promises of God in the New Covenant. Again, the author quotes Jeremiah 31, the prophecy, the promise of a new covenant. The days are coming when God is going to establish a new covenant with Israel and Judah. We see that in verse 8. That's another implied weakness, by the way, of the Old Covenant. Judah and Israel are separated. They could not even stay harmonious as one people of God. The people were divided. Verse 9 continues, this new covenant is not going to be like the one he made with their fathers. The one when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So here's one thing we need to be clear about. The old covenant being criticized is not everything about the Old Testament. It's focused specifically on the law given through Moses. We know that there are other covenants made. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. I will send you a seed who will crush the serpent's head. He made covenants with Abraham. I will make you a great nation. Bless all people through you. Your descendants will be as numerous as the, the sand on the, on the sea, as numerous as the stars of heaven. He made promises to David. I will give you a son to sit on the throne 
forever. So those covenants are not being referenced here. It's the one made when he brought them out of Egypt, the Mosaic covenant. There's faultiness in that covenant. That covenant was a long lesson over hundreds of years that external law-keeping can't make anyone holy, cannot make anybody right with God. And the proof is in the disobedience of God's people. They did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The covenant was broken. And the people were punished, and rightly so. So the Mosaic covenant has to be replaced. The other covenant promises remain, and in fact are part of that second covenant of grace that we read about uh, in our confession of faith. So the promises of the new covenant are described in verses 10 to 12, still quoting from Jeremiah 31. Four promises that I want to go through each in turn. The first promise, I'll put their law into their minds and write them on their hearts. The second promise, I will be their God and they will be my people. The third promise, they won't be taught to know me because they all will know me from the least to the greatest. And then the fourth promise, that I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Let's look at the first promise. I'll put their laws and my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Here's, here's the first indicator that what happens in this new covenant is, is a key vital change in the way things are being done. Again, remember, before in the Old Covenant, the laws, the stipulations, the regulations, the statutes, they were external. They were written on those tablets of stone. They were copied onto clay tablets or papyrus and read aloud and something to be heard externally and submitted to. But now in the New Covenant, God promises something radically different. The laws are going to be inside written on our minds and written on our hearts. If you go back to the, the last paragraph from the insert this morning, uh, 7.3, for those who repent and believe in Christ, God gives the Holy Spirit, making them willing and able to receive. And of course, what we know about the Holy Spirit is that he also makes us capable of understanding his, God's law and keeping that law. More than that, willing and able to appreciate God's law and to love God's law. God's law becomes to us like Psalm 19 that we heard earlier, more precious than gold and sweeter even than honey. When you have an experienced, knowledgeable athlete or an experienced, knowledgeable worker, someone who inherently knows and loves his or her job, uh, and therefore does it at a really high level, self-motivated, with skill, proficiently. In a similar way, the, the Christian, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, with God's law written on his mind and on his heart, inherently knows and loves what he does, which is following God's law and putting it into practice. And so like the athlete who's able to govern his own play, call his own plays as you were in the old days, there's freedom. In Christ, there is freedom. And this is an important thing to remember because we forget it so easily. There's freedom from all these external rules and regulations. And if you think about it, when someone comes at you and says, you really ought to do this as a Christian, 
if you were a good Christian, you would do this. If you were a, you do that thing, well, that makes you a bad Christian. These external requirements, doesn't that, doesn't that take you off? It should. It's an external law. Unless it comes from God's word and we're being disciplined. But if it's God's law, we'll see it and we'll appreciate it. We'll recognize it and submit to it. God's law to us is beautiful and wonderful and worth studying, worth knowing, and worth doing. We're like those workers, like those athletes who are experts in their field and can govern their own affairs. And so the second promise is fulfilled as well, that God's people become God's followers and his obedient servants. We already know that in Christ, the law has been kept perfectly for us. That requirement that Christ laid down to the the crowd on the Sermon on the Mount has been fulfilled. Our righteousness does exceed that of the Pharisees. We are perfectly holy because Christ gives his perfect obedience to us by grace and through faith. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation. So now we are God's people and he is our God. And that's a relationship now that cannot be broken. Moses warned the people. He didn't just warn them, but basically told them, you are going to break the covenant and this is what's going to happen. Even before the covenant began, if you can put it that way. This is a relationship that cannot be broken. Because our relationship with Christ cannot be broken. Jesus is our mentor, our teacher, our leader. And we become like him. Just like an experienced athlete or worker again. Every single one that you find out there will have some teacher, some mentor that showed them the way that taught them what they were doing. And if you ask them, well, why do you do it this way? Well, I was taught by so-and-so back in the day. That's who we are with Christ. Why do you do it that way? Well, I'm following Christ. That's what Christ taught me to do. It's how he taught me to live. Why do you love your neighbor? Or no, let's make it more explicit, what we heard earlier this morning. Why do you love your enemy? Well, (laughs) because Jesus loved his enemies. Wasn't that kind of stupid? Doesn't that expose you to harm and being taken advantage of? Well, yeah, but that's what my Savior did. That's what he taught me to do. It's okay. I'll be fine. He'll take care of me. And so we become like a knowledgeable athlete or experienced athlete or worker. We become more and more like our teacher, our mentor. We become a student, a disciple. And so God is ours and we are his. The third promise is that they will all know me, which seems a little curious at first, that we don't teach one another, because we're called to teach one another in Scripture, to to exhort and to teach and, and to learn and disciple each other. But here the idea is not being taught about God, facts about God or things about God. This we still need and we always need, uh, this side of eternity. Here I think the idea is knowing God himself. And the connotation, I think, is that Old Testament idea, which is there in Jeremiah, of knowing being loving. Adam knew his wife Eve. He loved her. That's what it means. We love God. And so, when it says, uh, they shall not teach one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, I think what he's saying is, they won't have to teach each other love the Lord, because they will all 
love me from the least of them to the greatest. And so in the New Covenant, people don't need to be taught to love God because we love him already. (laughs) We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he saved us from sin. We love him because he sent his own son to die in our place and to obey the law in our place and to take away his wrath in our place, the wrath that we deserved. Because he makes us his sons and daughters, because he sends his Holy Spirit to us to teach us and equip us and enable us to live holy lives. Our love for God is just a natural reaction of who we are in Christ, a natural reaction to the awesome work that he's done for us and the gift of salvation that he's given to us. It's a natural part of the covenant, a promise fulfilled. The fourth promise is that he will be merciful toward their iniquities. He says, I will remember their sins no more. That's the foundation for the change, the why of all of this, the for in verse 12. For I will be merciful. His mercy, his remembering our sins no more, leads to all the other blessings in the new covenant. God does not see our sins anymore. He does not remember them. In the old covenant, the sins of the people were constantly before God. Every time they sinned, they had to make another sacrifice. Every time they sinned, they had to pay another fine, make restitution, do this, do that, follow the law here, there, everywhere. God does not see our sins. That's remarkable because we, we go about them daily. He remembers them no more because he chooses not to. He took them and put them on Christ and nailed them to the cross with him, dealt with them completely. They're gone. Gone. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Again, this covenant cannot be broken. He is our God. We are his people. That's a glorious promise. So the promises of the the old covenant are, are paltry in comparison to the promises of the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there was a ton of external control, but there was no change in the people. In the New Covenant, an internal change in God's people means there's no need for that external control. The promise of the Old Covenant was, do this, and I will forget your sins. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will inherit the land promise of the new covenant is, I will do this and you will benefit. I will do this and you will be blessed. I will do this and you will inherit eternity. I will do this and you will live. Old covenant promises, do what I tell you and I will bless you. The new covenant promises, I will bless you. And in response, you will do what I tell you. Through Jeremiah, God promised a new and a better covenant. In Jesus, he delivered, sent his son to be our covenant keeper, to live and to die in our place, to offer his work as a gift to us. We can't earn it. We can't purchase it. It's just a gift received through faith. You know, which would you rather be? That guy stifled by rules and procedures and regulations and guidelines and controls imposed by a leader who really doesn't trust you to do what needs to be done? Or would you rather be free to do what you know you need to do 
because you love to do it and because you love your leader. I'll pick the second every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Give me the freedom to do what I know what I need to do because I love the person I'm following. The world without Christ is doomed to the former way of doing things. It's always, always, always going to degenerate into more rules, more regulations, more laws, more control. It's happened in every country on the face of the earth and it always will. The only thing that can change that is the work of Christ, the new covenant that changes people who don't need to be controlled externally. Jesus also calls us, like Moses called the people of Israel, to be salt and light through our changed lives and through our changed behavior to bring light and life to those around us so that they can look at us and give glory to God our Father. One other quick thought here as we close. Being a rule follower is safe. <laughs> it's easy. It doesn't require much thought. It doesn't require much responsibility. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. How many people do you know like that in the workplace or otherwise? But what a dead and lifeless way to go through living. Most of us look at rule followers and, and, and they're made fun of. They're put down in the workplace. They're just, they're just kissing up to the boss. A life lived by faith in freedom with Christ is anything but mindless rule following. It's salt and light. And it will be attractive to those walking in darkness. When they see the freedom that we have to follow Christ, that will be attractive. Not like the rules and regulations and rites and rituals of the religions of the world. We are a different people. You're God's people. You're citizens of a new covenant. You have freedom in Christ. Live like it. And be salt and light to all those around you. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God and Father, we do want to be salt and light. We know we can't do it in our own effort or strength, so we do ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit here among us and upon us um, and help us to be uh, those who love your law for its own beauty and its glory and what it teaches us about you and about Jesus our Savior. We want to be those who, who really are enthusiastic about the life that we live in Christ um, and hopefully others will see that in us and be attracted to it and want to, to, uh, to follow our teacher, to follow our, our, uh, our mentor. Help us to live life that way, not under the thumb of, of rules and regulations that come at us externally, but empowered by the word, your law that is written upon our hearts, that is written upon our minds. And may that be evident in all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.